What if you could just find your mental pause button and go, wait, before I speak, I'm gonna think this through. I'm gonna remember that I prepared for this. I'm gonna remember that I deserve to be here. I'm gonna remember that I'm not greedy for asking for what I deserve or asking to be rewarded for, you know, what I'm supposed to be having in the first place. Having to negotiate for what you want can feel like getting a root canal. You'd rather not do it, but sometimes it's necessary. And that's especially the case when it comes to negotiating on salary, job promotions, you name it. And here on today's podcast to share with us about how we can say less and get more is Fatini Iconomopoulos. Nicknamed the negotiator since childhood, Fatini is an expert communicator with a passion for helping organizations and individuals, particularly women and disadvantaged groups, get what they want. For the last decade, Fotini has been helping Fortune 500 clients and audiences to achieve their business goals, increase profitability, and create a competitive advantage. She thrives in empowering people to navigate high-stakes scenarios and always leaves her audience with tangible actions to immediately help them tackle their next challenge. She's also the author of Say Less, Get More, Unconventional Negotiation Techniques to Get What You Want, and an MBA instructor at York University's Schoolish School of Business. Enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Fotini, welcome to the Explore This podcast, and thank you so much for joining us all the way from Toronto today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. All right, so just a little bit of a background of how we first connected with Fotini. I dialed in into a book club organized by the Women's Executive Network that was from 2 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. a couple of weeks ago, and Fatini was a guest speaker there. And confession, Fatini, I dialed in from bed in my pajamas, but I could <laughs> not help myself because I really didn't want to miss out on that intimate book club session with you. And it was also my very first book club experience. I was really glad that we had a chance to connect after that. Well, I, I mean, no judgment here. If I could have done it in my pajamas, I would have. So <laughs> I'm glad you joined it. <laughs> All right. So, Fatini, in that book club session, you read from the epilogue from your book, Say Less, Get More, which I recall was a very powerful story, which outlined the importance of how saying less allows you to achieve more. Yeah. So, I mean, the story I told, and I and it, it kind of came at the last minute in the book itself. Like after I'd finished writing the majority of the book, I felt there was still something missing. And what I thought was missing was what I considered my failures in negotiation. So, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, what are, what is your worst negotiation? What is your best negotiation? And I feel like the ones I included in the epilogue are the, both rolled into one. And it's because in the moment, I tell a story about a former manager and how things were going really badly. He was a misogynist. There was discrimination involved and sexual harassment involved. And I raised it because that's what I do. Like I'm not somebody who can just sit quietly and let that kind of stuff happen unnoticed. I've always been advocating for myself and I encourage today other people to do the same, but I get why it's so difficult. And in that moment, it's really challenging to not let your emotions take over. And I'm not suggesting people shouldn't have emotions because I, I think we should, but I want to channel them appropriately. So in that moment, when I was ready to respond in, to what he was doing or react to what he was doing, because he was being just a, a horrible human being, gaslighting and lying and raising his voice and all of those things. And I was ready to just 
launch back and do the same because I'm a feisty woman. I instead, I hit what I call my mental pause button. And I went, no, 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 I am not going to allow you to call me emotional. I'm not going to give you ammunition to go into the boardroom and say, she did this and she did that. She's, you know, she's off the rails or, or whatever. I'm like, I'm not going to give you that power. I'm going to hold on to that power. And so instead of becoming the victim of that moment, I tell my audiences, I want to be the victor. I want to say I had control over you. So instead of lashing out at him, I went, oh, okay. I'm just going to sit here quietly and let you unravel and let you give me the information I need to take this to the next level. And I was so happy with myself to be able to come out of that unscathed, to not have given him an inch to be able to take anything over from me. And even though I didn't get what I wanted in that negotiation, what I got was so much validation to know I had no regrets. There was no what if in my mind. There was no, oh God, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Because that's a horrible feeling to like to eat you up. And because I had handled myself with grace, because I had handled myself with diplomacy intact and still quite firm, but because I was able to do that, I felt so confident. And I got the validation that I needed that despite doing all the things right, you know, following all the academic literature, following all of the psychological stuff that I have read, I did everything right. And still, I couldn't change this person. I couldn't change this circumstance. That for me was the validation that if it's not going to change, despite all of my effort, then it's not a place for me anymore. And so I got that validation. I had already, the second I got off the phone, I had hired a lawyer ready to to talk to about this discrimination issue and things like that. And it ended up leading to a few years worth of awful back and forth with lawyers and stuff like that. But that for me was one of the most satisfying moments in my career, one of the most satisfying negotiations, because I had the power to take over instead of allowing him to take over me. That's such an incredibly powerful story for Tini. And I think that's just a wonderful place for us to start on the conversation of saying less and getting more. And to also talk about the power of the pause, mental pause that you talk about, you dedicate a whole chapter to it in your book. And we actually like to understand more about it, what it's about and, and why it's important for us to hit our pause button. So to start off, maybe could you tell us why do people find it hard to hit their pause button? Yeah, it's an automatic response. So if you go back to our ancestral brain, so when we were cave people roaming the earth, what would happen is we would be faced with physical threats of some kind. Maybe it was a saber-toothed tiger or some kind of horned elephant. I don't know. And what would happen is all of the rational energy would leave your brain and it would go to your limbs. And that's what would allow you to run like hell to get away from that physical threat. And today we don't have very many physical threats. Well, most of us don't, but we do have psychological threats, but our physiology, our brains and our bodies still work the same way. We still have this ancestral brain. So when we're faced with a physical threat of something, something that makes us uncomfortable and negotiation makes us uncomfortable, advocating for ourselves makes us uncomfortable. The fear of not being liked or being perceived as greedy makes us super uncomfortable. You know, the fear of making someone else uncomfortable makes us uncomfortable. So in all of those moments, what happens is all the rational thought leaves our brains. And then we have those moments that make us go, oh no, why did I do that? Why did I say this? This is what I should have said. 
And you have those moments of regret. And maybe it's just because you're so freaking exhausted from living through a pandemic for the last two years. You know, your brain is on overdrive already. So it doesn't have a lot of capacity to hang on to that rational thought. And so what I challenge people to do is instead of going into this autopilot mode of, I'm just going to react to everything happening. I'm going to just spew whatever comes out of my mouth. I'm going to let the rational thought leave my brain and whatever happens, happens. What if you could just find your mental pause button and go, wait, before I speak, I'm going to think this through. I'm going to remember that I prepared for this. I'm going to remember that I deserve to be here. I'm going to remember that I'm not greedy for asking for what I deserve or asking to be rewarded for you know, what I'm supposed to be having in the first place. If you could pause to think about that, the way that in, you know, in my circumstances, when I'm dealing with a misogynist to go pause to go, no, no, I'm not going to have this moment of verbal diarrhea where I just, it all comes out of my mouth and I can't take it back. I'm not going to give you that power. So if you could pause to go, I'm not going to speak yet. I'm going to think this through and it could take just milliseconds. It could take, you know, a few more seconds than that. But when that happens, that's just giving your brain a breather, right? It's giving you time to recover in that moment. So the rational thought can just come back in and now you go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that I know I need to say. And what helps with some of those things is things like preparing in advance so that your brain has an easier time of recalling that information. So it's not completely foreign. So when you're in the moment, you're not going, Oh, what do I say right now? It's my fight or flight mode kicking in. It's very easy to access your pause button and go, oh yeah, yeah. My brain knew this was going to happen. So it's already here. It's already here. It's easily accessible to me. All I have to do is press pause for a millisecond and I'll be able to get it back. So it just makes life a little bit easier. It's almost like prepping your pause button or, or you know, prepping your finger to press the pause button a little bit faster. It's those types of things that can help us to have fewer of those moments of regret and quite frankly, have moments that we're going to be really happy about. Besides the internal pause button that we should always have in mind, right? I'm imagining a conversation that we're having perhaps with a recruiter, for instance. So when you're preparing yourself to to have that pause and to think about what you want to say before you verbal diarrhea, are there some practical ways that we can also frame the moment of pause that we want to have to the other party that we are negotiating with? Yeah, I mean, most people assume that that silence is going to be really awkward and it's not you know, that few little seconds actually gives the other person the signal that you are listening to them and that you are thinking very carefully, that you are being conscientious, that you are being courteous and diplomatic, whatever is going to come out of your mouth next. But if you are super worried about going, what if they think I'm stupid? What if they think uh, there's something wrong with me because I'm just freezing here in this moment? Then it's very easy to frame it and go, you know what? I need a second to think about that. Or I want to make sure I'm crystal clear on my answer. Give me a second to formulate my thoughts. You're taking control of that pause and you're framing it as I'm owning this moment. You're not asking for permission and going, can I have a second? Because I don't need to ask you for permission. I'm going to say, I need a moment to think that through. There's a different level of confidence that comes through when you frame it as, hey, I'm owning this moment. I'm taking the time that I am owed versus I'm begging you for permission for that moment. But more often than not, just taking the time and maybe giving a visual cue of you know pondering or writing something down like you're writing notes, people will wait. They're, you're going to have them on the edge of their seats because they're going, oh, I wonder what's going to come out of her mouth next. And so you can own it in a number of different ways. Fatini, as you're speaking, I feel like there's so many things that I want to put as a visual cue, like literally a post-it note or a huge A4 paper and stick it on the wall to just remind me of those words that I can say. That might actually help me as I'm having potential conversations like this, because sometimes it might not come so naturally, but it feels like if you have those reminders, it might actually help you in those conversations. Is that something that you do? 
I used to do it all the time. So I speak really quickly. I get really passionate and I speak really quickly. And when I used to run these training workshops, I would have a notebook on my desk of like, you know, here's what's coming up next. And I'd have post-it notes and big block letters that said, slow down <laughs> because I needed some visual reminders. And sometimes it'd be one that says, shut up because you need to give the other person space to respond. And because of my own visual reminders, everything I'm doing these days is virtual. But when I do live events and I'm speaking to an audience, I actually made up these, I don't have one around me. I actually made up these little cards with a, a visual of a pause button on them. And at the bottom, it says use frequently in moments of stress. And I gave them out at, to every attendee at events. And I gave them out to my MBA students. And at the end, and I would tell my students, I was like, yeah, take more if you want to. And one of them told me, they're like, I have one on my mirror. I have one on my nightstand. I have one as my screensaver or whatever. I go, got to ask why the nightstand? And he goes, I don't get into arguments with my wife as much at night anymore. So I would absolutely agree. Those visual reminders can be super useful. If you are talking to somebody, you know, in this virtual world, if you're in a zoom meeting with someone, maybe, you know, stick a sticky note right under your camera that says pause, do whatever you need to do to create those reminders for yourself. Uh, and I, I guarantee it will help. Do what works for you. And in this case, if yeah. it has to be a huge post-it note, do it as long as it works for you. Yeah, absolutely. So for Tini, Janice and myself, we are young professionals in the workforce, having been in the corporate world for around about two years post-graduation from our MBA. And we definitely believe and want to learn more about how we can advocate for ourselves, something that you speak about, and it's also very close to your heart. And that's something that we're definitely on a learning journey as well. And so whether it's asking for a promotion or seeking a higher salary, and all these things are understandably extremely difficult and anxiety-inducing conversations that we're bound to have. And we also need to know how we can ask for more, advocate as well as negotiate for ourselves better and elevate ourselves in the workplace while doing so. So can you share with us some thoughts around how do we take control of negotiation anxiety and best prepare ourselves for an effective negotiation? So when it comes to that anxiety, I, I kind of scratched the surface on it earlier, but one of the things is prepare, 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 prepare. I can't say that word enough because that is what, what will bring it to the forefront of your brain. So when that ancestral moment comes up, you have much easier access to it. What do I mean by preparing? There's a number of different things. First, it's do your research, know what is going on in your market, know what is going on in your industry, talk to other people who have experienced mentors and so on so that you can ease some of that fear of the unknown. Because when we don't know, that's what causes so much of the fear in our brains. But when you go, oh, I know so much about this industry now. I know exactly how it was for other people who were just coming out of the MBA. I know exactly how it was for other folks who were in starting positions. This is how it should be in a culture versus I don't know how the culture is supposed to be. When you have a lot more of that information, you grow your confidence because knowledge is power. So you become much more powerful. But then there's a level of also preparing preparing what you are going to say. So I want you to literally practice it, practice it in front of a mirror, practice it with a friend so that your tongue literally gets used to saying that it's muscle memory. When it gets used to saying those words, you're going to be less likely for it to be coming out as a jumbled mess. It's going to come out poised. Your brain's going to go, oh, I remember these words. I know how to say these words. So again, it's another way to easier access your pause button. So that level of preparation is going to be huge. The other thing to think about stuff like, you know, what if, what if they ask me this? 
you know, that's the kind of stuff I also want to be prepared for. A lot of questions are going to be super predictable. So prepare for those questions. Do a little bit of role play with your friends. Google the kind of questions that are asked in this type of interview. I mean, there's so much information at your fingertips now. There's lots of ways for you to be prepared for that. And then when it comes to some of the mindset stuff, some of the psychological tips that I've read about over the years, one of my favorites is a study that came out of Harvard back in 2014, I believe, where they had these people in the study, they were told to stand up in front of a group and sing a song. And that for people, a microphone is even more scary than death for a lot of people. So in this study, they put people into three separate groups and they told each of them different sets of instructions. They told the first group, tell yourself, uh, I am anxious. They told the second group, tell yourself, I'm excited. And they told the third group, say nothing at all. So regardless of how they were feeling, they were told to say these words or not say something. And what they found was the group who told themselves they were excited outperformed the other two groups based on a computer that measured their volume and pitch. And so some people could go, oh, well, maybe it just so happened that they had better singers in that group. That's not true. And the reason I know that is because they also outperformed them. Here's the really interesting part on a math test and a speech test. And they were they were perceived as more persistent, more confident. It just made a world of difference in terms of their overall performance in so many activities that they executed. So it's so simple to be able to, instead of saying, I'm so nervous about this, it's, I'm so excited to finally get what I want. I'm so excited to finally put all of this practice to good use. I am so excited to stand up for myself. If you can make a little change like that, just reframing it in your brain, it makes a world of difference. Now, there's other things, very simple things you can do, like taking a meditative breath, breathing in for four, holding six and out for eight. Those types of things, again, will help to calm that primitive brain that's trying to take over. There's power poses that Dr. Amy Cuddy introduced us to a number of years ago, like the the Wonder Woman pose that everybody knows, or if you've ever raced uh, and crossed a finish line, you know, the V for Victor, you know, those types of things, again, will allow your brain to catch up to what your body is telling others. So take up more physical space. So there's things that you can do with your body. There's things that you can say to yourself, and there's things that you can do to actually prepare your brain for all of those moments. And all of that will make a world of difference. Yeah. I got to say personally, reframing visualization and speaking words of affirmation and even some pretty like gangster music as well that really gets me in the mood <laughs> pumps me up and definitely visualizing that I'm going to seal the deal I'm going to come to a yes those are things that I personally have felt like has helped me a lot in my past experiences negotiating as well so, the pump up music is such yeah. a great one I mean that is another version of the I'm excited it's getting you actually excited I love it yeah, right. It's it's amazing how music or the or soundtrack of sorts can really, really get you in the victorious mindset. So yeah, I just actually wanted to ask you a question, what you mentioned earlier about getting to the right mindset and reframing and visualizing yourself for success. For instance, I think when it comes to salary or compensation negotiation, it might be arguably easier to make the ask if you, let's say, have stronger perceived leverage or, or stronger perceived bargaining power. So we're thinking of our listeners who, for example, may be undergoing a career pivot, um, such as Sarah and myself, they might be thinking of transitioning to a whole new industry where they might have to like start from the bottom or have some kind of concessions in a process. In those kind of scenarios where the bargaining power is seemingly unequal, how would you negotiate in those scenarios? Like, What are some practical steps that we can take? So one of the, the places where 
where power comes from is dependency on the other person. So if they see you as somebody who could easily be replaced with five other people or 500 people behind you, then they're certainly not dependent on you. But if you do a really great job of differentiating yourself from the rest of the pack, if you can say, you know, here are some of the interesting experiences that I bring that other candidates don't have. Here's some of the the unique abilities that I have that few people in my place would ever have. That's all of a sudden now you are standing out from the rest of the crowd. You are not as easily replaceable. And now now they have some more dependence on you. That's one of the ways to increase your leverage in those types of negotiations. And I would I would start that really early. It's not an arrogant thing to do. If you're doing it in a collaborative way, going, look, I see a really great match for us here. I know you're looking for somebody with these unique skills, with this particular experience. And I know based on my my knowledge of the industry, I'm one of the few people that does have that. You can talk about yourself in a way without being arrogant of saying, just very matter of fact, here is the list of things that I bring to the table that I know few other people do. The other place where leverage would come from is from your level of dependency on them. So if they are the only job that you want, they're the only ones that you're talking to or the only ones who are talking to you, they're going to go, well, great. I can have her for a bargain price because she's desperate to work with me. But if you were to hint that there are other opportunities out there, that they're not the only game in town, now all of a sudden that increases your leverage as well. You have to be really careful with this one though. And this is particularly important for people who are working in an organization and are getting competing offers. now. Imagine you're in a relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend and you go, look, if you don't treat me right, I'm going to go to this other ex-boyfriend around the corner or this other offer I've got. That's not going to go very well in your relationship. And it's the parallels to your working relationship too. So the last thing you want to do is go in there and threaten, even though you have this very powerful opportunity, threatening the other person is really just going to trigger their ego and destroy any trust between you. But what you can do, because you still want to use that leverage, you want them to know it exists, but you don't want to do it in a way that's going to be perceived as combative. You can say, look, Obviously, there are other opportunities. I've got people knocking down my door because of the type of experiences that I have. What can we do to work together? Because I want to find a way to make this one work. What can we do to make this one sustainable? So you can reference the fact that others exist, but say my focus is staying here with you. Turn it into a problem-solving opportunity instead of a threatening moment. And be very careful about how much information you give away. You don't want to mention who the other company is, what their actual offer is, that is information you shouldn't be giving away at all. If they're asking you for that type of information, then it would be appropriate for you to say something like, look, I'm sure you wouldn't want me sharing that type of information if it was you. So I want to make sure I pay them the same respect uh, and I'm going to keep that confidential. So you can really just flip it around and own that moment as well. You don't need to give away everything. Giving away information is giving away power, but hinting that it exists Well, that is a very powerful thing because you're changing the dynamics between you. You really do need to go in there confident in what you have to offer. I have MBA students all the time coming to ask me for help with their salary negotiations. And they'll say something to me like, you know, but there's 500 other people that they could be talking to. And my answer to them is, but they chose you. Why are they talking to you? You made it to the top of that pack of 500 people. What is it about your profile, about your experience, about the way you handled yourself personally that they really like? Make sure you personally acknowledge that and maybe frame that up for them as well as a nice little reminder. You made it there for a reason. If you don't believe it, it's going to be very hard for them to believe it. 
on the topic of hinting, so not giving too much away, but just hinting that you might have other offers up your sleeve. If that was really the case, that you had a couple of offers, then fine, well, and great. You can do that hinting. But Fatini, what if it was the scenario that it is true that you are the only company that I'm talking to that is giving me that offer? And while I don't want to seem desperate, how, how do we navigate that if you actually don't really have another offer at hand that you could potentially even hint to increase your bargaining power? So you don't necessarily have to tell them that you have them or don't have them lined up. What you could say is, look, obviously I'm I'm looking at a number of different opportunities, whether you're looking at them in a job ad or you're looking at them from an interview perspective. The fact is your mind is open to a number of opportunities. This is the one that is most appealing to me. So this is the one I want to focus my energy on. How can we work together on this? So by saying, yes, of course, I'm open to a number of things or I'm open, you know, my search isn't done yet. I would like for it to be done here. What can we do to make this one move to the top of my list of making this the most sustainable? That's the type of language you can use. You don't want to tell them I'm desperate to get into your company (laughs) because you will pay for it if that's the case. You're the only company I'm ever going to talk to because that would just make you look desperate as well. It's about going realistically. Obviously, I have to be open to a number of opportunities right now. This one, however, brings some unique stuff to the table, compliment them and say, I, I obviously find a lot appealing about this. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So what can we do to make this the conversation that stops the search or that stops me from talking to anybody else? That is incredibly powerful to have up your sleeve in case that ever happens to any one of us. So for Tini, 2003, understandably quite backdated, but it was a US study of the Carnegie Mellon graduates, which showed that only 7% of women negotiated their first salary compared to 57% of men labeled aggressive instead of assertive or attracting the dreaded B word, which you all know about. I think the fear was the fear of retaliation. And granted, these are statistics from 2003. We definitely hope that these numbers have improved drastically since now we're in 2022. But I think the matter of fact is that women are generally known to be more collaborative, not wanting to step on toes or rock the boat or potentially even inviting conflict. And so I think that there's a very fine line between the ability to present yourself as assertive rather than aggressive, and then on the art of being diplomatic and polite, but still getting what we want. So how do we navigate those very fine lines? I mean, to to answer your first reference about the study, it is something I talk about a lot. And though it hasn't been replicated, so it's hard to compare data, I have seen more recent studies that show more women are negotiating, but they're still not getting the same results as men. And that is because there's still so much bias out there. So that perception of being aggressive versus being assertive is still the fine line that we're continuing to walk as women, which really sucks. And it would be nice to say that you know, society should catch up. We shouldn't have to, you know, conform to society. And that would be a lovely thing to say, but I'm not willing to wait a hundred years to do that. So I want to help women not conform, but find an easier path to get to that. And one of the ways to do that is you can still be confident But it's a fine line of making sure that you're not arrogant. Men are able to get away with being arrogant, especially men from a dominant group. So whether it's the the, the dominant group wherever you are in North America over here, it's white men. You know, in your part of the world, the dominant group might look a little bit different, but it probably is male. It's understanding that they can get away with a lot more than you can. So it's important to make sure you don't you don't um, shy away from being confident 
And, and one of the ways to do that is instead of using language that's going to make someone feel diminutive, that's going to make someone feel small, that's going to make someone feel that you're attacking them, you can use language that's slightly different. So I would say the difference is something like, instead of that's never going to work, it's, well, how do you think the client would respond to that? And, and I change that from a statement of almost proverbially pointing my finger at somebody to forcing them to come to the same conclusion but without feeling as though I'm the one forcing it, right? It's almost leading the horse to drink. You're leading them to the pond and eventually they're going to drink anyway. It's those types of things. When you are getting a a no from someone, instead of uh, when they say, no, you, you can't do that. And you say, but that's unacceptable. You can use other language like, well, how do we find a way to work around the no? What would happen if we did it this way? So it's asking questions instead of making demands that will get you to the same destination, but will remove some of that aggressive label. And you can still be quite firm without being rude. So sometimes it's just doing away with any concerns about being perceived as aggressive. One of the things I find women in particular tend to do, but some others outside of women do it, but particularly women is they use these extra words. One of the reasons for the title of the book, Say Less, Get More, is to use fewer words, to be more succinct. So in English, I find some of the most dangerous words in negotiations are, I think. And as soon as you say, I think, Now you're telling me, well, you don't know. So you're making yourself sound more doubtful. And so I don't want you to sound doubtful. I want you to sound like you know what you're talking about. And so instead of, I think this is the way, this is the way that things need to get done, or this is the way that would be the most fruitful. This is the way that would be the most profitable. Not, I think this is the most profitable way. So it's removing some of that stuff to just get rid of any doubt because of that fear of being too aggressive or any of those things. We tend to fill in those words. And I would say, strip it back. The fewer words you use, the better. Because if you're not using, that's never going to work. You can't do that. That kind of language. Well, then And then you're doing the opposite. Either way, you're going to be perceived as too weak or too aggressive. But keep your language simple, that say less, get more mantra, and you're probably going to make a lot more headway. Use questions to lead them somewhere. And I say carefully because questions are also a way to shut the conversation down. You need to be very specific in how you ask your questions. So it's not yes or no questions. It's not, can we do that? It's how can we do that? Force them into a solution-oriented conversation with you before you allow them to answer no to something. It's not a yes or no question. It's a how or a what question. What would make that change? Hypothetically, how would we make that work? Think about how you can structure yourself in a way to be perceived as a collaborative person who's forcing conversation versus somebody who is asking for permission, because that's not what we need to do. I think in the book, there was an example you gave about how you can make your language more decisive. So I remember reading a line that said, if someone were to say, I think the price range should be between $100 to $700, even providing that big range with, with that fear at the back of your mind, you know, not coming to a decisive amount because you're afraid of how people would react to it, that also comes across as being not confident, right? I talk a lot about ranges in general. And generally speaking, I hate using ranges. There's one exception to that. And the reason is ranges can make you sound not credible. So if you say, you know, I can pay you anything from a hundred to $700 for this item, why would I accept a hundred when I know you can pay me 700? That's just ridiculous. Now, the only exception to that is when you're in a salary negotiation 
it can be useful for you to use ranges because it makes it seem as though in what is a very competitive negotiation, because when it comes to money, it's whatever I take, you lose. And whatever you take, I lose. So it's a very competitive thing. But yet I'm in a salary negotiation where I want to be collaborative with this person because I want to have a long-term relationship with them and so on. So how do I straddle those two worlds? Well, ranges are a way to do that, but you still got to be really strategic and really careful about your ranges. So it's not going to be a massively wide range. In fact, on Twitter the other day, I saw someone make a post about, hey, we're looking for such and such type of people. The salary range is 80 to 120,000. And I was like, huh? How does that make any sense whatsoever? And I I did a whole thread about it. And I was like, if I'm going into a job and you're telling me somebody can make 50% more than I will, that does not make you sound like you are a credible or a trustworthy employer. There's no way in hell I'm applying for that job. Or if I am, I'm not accepting less than 120,000 because you just told me you've budgeted 120,000. If you give me any less than that, I'm going to be pissed. So um, it just makes the saying, here it is, I'm dangling in front of you, but I'm not giving it to you. That just feels awful. Now, on the flip side of that, when you are an employee who wants to get a job, you want to be perceived as collaborative. So if you're trying to get a $100,000 salary and you don't want to go in there going, you must give me $100,000 or else I'm walking away, you can say, look, based on my research, based on all of this information I have on my fingertips or based on my experiences and so on, here's what I would expect for someone with my experience level. I would expect a range of, let's call it 97 to 112,000. Now I'm coming to the table with these very specific numbers, which makes it look like I've done a a heck of a lot of research and I'm super credible. (laughs) But I'm also using a tighter range because if I said, you know, 200,000, they'd think I'm ridiculous. Why are you asking me for that much when the the market is saying 100,000? But by saying I'm going to be looking for this much, and again, that range, if I'm aiming for 100, the bottom end of my range is that that number that I'm aiming for. The top end is aspirational. If they give me the top end, great. But I'm I'm trying to be strategic about it because I've seen people make the mistake of, well, I want to get 100,000, so I'm going to tell them 90 to 100. So I look like I'm flexible and collaborative. But I said, you've just told them you'd be willing to accept 90. Why would they give you 100? Unless you have a really wonderful employee who's like, yes, I value you. I want to have you here for a long time. That's within my budget. Those are rare birds, right? Because everybody's trying to get a deal. Then you've got to be really careful. So those ranges can be tight to make it look like I'm flexible, but I'm still going to be strategic about it. And even that employer could have said, look, the range is 110 to 120,000, all depending on your, your experience level. And it would be very credible for them to go, if I don't need to spend more time with you, if you are more efficient, then obviously I'm going to give you more money. That's totally credible. But those ranges can make you look ridiculous in most circumstances, especially for something like if you're buying an actual product or widget or a service. If it's something that is you know, set in stone, it doesn't depend on a number of factors, like how much experience you have, how competitive the market is, and so on and so forth. Go in there and be concise instead of of making yourself look less credible. Mm. So it seems that it is quite dependent on the scenario that you're in, right? Whether it's high stakes, whether it's a salary negotiation, purchasing a widget, the style of negotiation would kind of differ according to that. And I think when it comes to high stakes negotiation, I think my takeaway from it is to be collaborative, but also be very, you know, be diligent about doing your homework so they can come to a very acceptable and and reasonable range. But yeah, Fotini, besides, you know, these high stakes negotiation that all of us would inevitably have to do at, at some point of our lives, what ways would you recommend for us 
to be able to flex and exercise our negotiation muscles so that when it comes to a high stakes scenario, we would be more ready for it. Are there any actionable tools or strategies that you can recommend for our listeners? So this is going to sound absolutely bizarre, but spend time around children. If you don't have children of your own, go do some babysitting, go hang out with a family friend, go to the playground and observe what's going on because Children are relentless when it comes to negotiating. They will try everything in the book. They will try everything under the sun. I use a lot of child analogies when I'm in the boardroom all the time, because most of the time, those very high level executives that I deal with are like dealing with toddlers. They're exactly the same. Like the primitive brain is what we're dealing with, with toddlers, because they're not sophisticated enough to, to have that cognitive brain that's going to take over. And when negotiation gets really heated and people get really emotional, they revert back to that same primitive brain. So I know it sounds really ridiculous, but start spending some time with children because they are going to test you and test you and test you. So that's an easy, low stakes way to, to practice. Another thing is, you know, where are your low risk opportunities or no risk opportunities? You know, here in North America, I'm constantly telling people, call your telecom company, call your cable provider, call those types of folks that you can renegotiate this kind of stuff all the time. Because if you try to negotiate with someone, it's a customer service rep of some kind. The last thing they're going to do is say, no, I don't want you as a customer anymore. That's not going to happen. So you can afford to, uh, to practice with this person and go, what can we do to get me a better deal? What can we do to save me some money every month? How can you improve? my current situation. So you can practice with someone like that where it's going to be really low stakes. But I would say practice, practice, practice is how to do it. Another way to practice is to think about how can I flex my pause button muscles? You know, where can I do that? Again, in low stakes environments so that it becomes so familiar to you when the high stakes come up, it's easier for you to access. And that can be something as simple as when you're in conversation with someone you know, with a friend, with a colleague, with anybody in every day, when they're done talking, instead of jumping in right away, can you count to three? Before you answer them, can you count first and then say something? You will might you might find this awkward at first for yourself. For them, it won't be awkward because what's going to happen is when you count to three, they're going to go, oh, they're digesting what I'm saying. Oh, they must really be listening to what I have to say. Because so many of us, when we're in conversation, we're going, what am I going to say next? What am I going to say next? What am I going to say next? And as soon as we see that other person's mouth stop moving, we're like, great, now I get to say what I said I wanted to. And we haven't actually paid as much attention to them as we want. And people pick up on those clues at a subconscious level. They don't know why. They can't articulate it. They don't know what's going on. But when you respond the second they finish talking, it feels like you're not listening. So what if you just counted to three before you started talking, that would make them feel so much more acknowledged, trusting, and so on. And it's going to be easier and easier for you for when the stakes are high, when the temptation for that rational thought to leave comes on, you know how to do this count to three thing, and you're going to be able to regain your rational thought a lot faster. So those are just little things that you could do to start training your brain for those bigger moments. Another thing I heard you share about on a separate podcast, and it was about how whenever somebody asks you for help, instead of saying the words, no problem, no biggie, anytime, the words that we should try to use on the other hand should be words like, I appreciate it. And I felt that that was so powerful because you spoke about how it helps to give you that equal power or to kind of neutralize. And maybe you want to share with our listeners a little bit more about that. 
Yeah. So this is a persuasion principle. This comes from Dr. Robert Cialdini is like the godfather of all things persuasion. Any book I've ever read about psychology and and, uh, behavioral psychology all references this guy. What it is, is when someone says thank you to you, you've done something nice for someone and now they're acknowledging you with a thank you. You have a moment of power. And if you say to them, no problem, you're welcome. You're basically saying you are welcome to come and take advantage of me. You are welcome to come ask me for more over and over again. Don't feel guilty about asking me to take on more stuff. And if you've removed all of the guilt, if you've removed all of that, you've rolled out the welcome mat to them, then that means they're going to come back over and over. And you're going to be going, why do I feel so freaking burnt out? Why am I the only one in the office taking on these extra tasks? And it's because you gave them the power to do that instead of hanging on to that power yourself. So what if in those moments, instead of saying you're welcome or no problem, you could keep that moment of power and maybe use it to your advantage by saying something like, hey, I appreciate you acknowledging that. Or, hey, I'm sure if circumstances were reversed, you would do the same for me. And if you say something like that, they're going to go, yeah, you know what? If circumstances were reversed, I would do the same for her. So they've now logged in the back of their brain. When I have an opportunity to help out Sarah Ann or to help out Janice, I am going to use that opportunity. It might be six minutes from now, or it might be six months from now, or you might get that person who goes, I don't, I wouldn't do the same for them. I'm not going to come back here and feel guilty next time for not doing it. So I mean, I'm not going to come back for more from this person. So you prevented them now from coming back and taking advantage of you. But the point is you have this moment of power. Don't just dismiss it and give it away. Don't roll out the red carpet for them to come and keep taking advantage of you. And it's okay to also feel good about helping somebody. And so you don't necessarily need to, you know, bank it for obligation in the future, but still don't throw away that moment of power. Just something as simple as I appreciate you acknowledging that. That's saying, yeah, it was a lot of time out of my day. And I'm acknowledging that and you're acknowledging that. I definitely recognize that I'm learning a lot of new language or sort of new vocabulary that I want to put into my day to day. When a colleague reached out to me to ask me to volunteer to help out with something and I remembered what you said. So I I said, yes, I would help. And when she said, thank you, instead of saying no problem, I said, I appreciate it. And even I found myself like, oh, that's that's something new that I wouldn't normally say. So thank you for for teaching us uh, new ways to approach this because like you say, you don't want to miss out on holding on to that moment of power in that sense. So I'm curious, Sarah Ann, how did you feel when you said that? I think initially I was like, oh, that is definitely not something in my natural language, but it felt really good to say it because I recognize that it feels nice to be appreciated because you recognize that I am taking time out of my very busy day with a lot of things on my plate to help you to go above and beyond. Yeah. So now you're basking in that moment of acknowledgement instead of throwing it away. Definitely. That was really, that was a very good learning and very practical moment where I actually practiced it the next day that I heard it. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that. So for Tini, one of the things you wanted to also mention is that given that most of our listeners are currently based in the Asia region, but we do get a lot of speakers internationally. And so on that note, we wanted to understand a little bit more about how we can consider cultural nuances when we're undergoing negotiations. So for example, it's no surprise that as Asians, we're perhaps less upfront, less confrontational by nature, and we may also have the tendency to be less bold. And additionally, there are also some cultural stigmas that are attached to talking about 
money and salary so openly that can make things extra challenging. How should we think about this? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because one of the things that I've been priding myself on has been in writing the book, I wanted it to be applicable everywhere, knowing full well that that the negotiation habits are different in different parts of the world. So in North America, for example, you might think, okay, yes, we are more bold, even brazen in some people's terms to talk about money, but we don't negotiate very often. It is an unusual thing to go to a market or something like that and negotiate. Whereas when I go to Asia, I'm expecting to negotiate. I do not expect to pay the first number that comes out of somebody's mouth. That is just a norm that I've become accustomed to no matter where I am in Asia in Europe as well, it's the same. Like in different parts of the world, there are different norms. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is understanding who am I dealing with? What is the norm here? It's having a level of empathy. Every great negotiator has a high level of empathy. And I want people to be crystal clear. Empathy is not agreement. Empathy means I can understand the shoes that you're walking in. It doesn't mean I agree with your position, but I'm understanding that you're walking in that way. I understand where you're coming from. So now I can use that information to my advantage so I don't misstep so that we're speaking the same language. Um, so it's it's just basically go, taking that principle and using it wherever you are. So if I'm in, in Asia and talking about money is really uncomfortable, I might acknowledge that because I have empathy. I can go, look, I know this may be taboo, but I'm also going to find something that we do have in common. I know that it's really important to you and to me to make sure that, that this job is sustainable, to make sure that you don't have high turnover and so on. So it's important that we discuss this to make sure that we achieve this common goal that we both have. So no matter where you are, it's going, well, what is the norm here? And how do I work around some of the norms? It doesn't mean that I have to adopt the norm, but it means I need to acknowledge that things are different and I may need to adjust accordingly. So if I'm in North America and I go to a flea market and I start offering them you know, something like, when they're they're asking for a hundred dollars for something, and I ask to pay five dollars, they might be really insulted. But that might be totally normal in another part of the world. But it's just having that empathy to go, okay, this would be insulting over here. So it's really taking that into account and going, who am I dealing with right now? The interesting thing that's now making this more complicated is globalization. So I teach MBA classes that are full of students from India and China. And so they have very different cultural norms of negotiation than we do in North America. And so some people might make the assumption of, okay, well, if they come from India, here's how they're going to be negotiating. But this person has transplanted themselves into another region. So are they going to be behaving as their regional norm is, or are they adapting to their new norm? So it's really now we have to kind of guess our way through and, and dig a little bit deeper to figure out what are the patterns of behavior that I need to be aware of for this particular individual. You can't make assumptions just based on geography anymore. You might be dealing with somebody in Asia who spent loads of time getting an education in North America. And so their norms may have changed. So it's taking that time to understand who am I dealing with? I'm not dealing with a stereotype. I'm dealing with an individual. I'm not dealing with a company. I'm dealing with a person. And so it's really going to that granular, granular level to figure that out before I open my mouth. That is why my pause moment to go, who am I dealing with? And what is their background? What is their personal experiences? And how is that affecting our conversation right now? And then I can decide what is the what are the words that need to come out of my mouth to make this a more effective conversation? I really like the part 
where you mentioned about having a lens of empathy. It's not important to only hear what they're saying, but to also try to understand where they're coming from, try to understand these cultural nuances. And understandably, in a time like this, where globalization is is obviously rampant and I think even, even more difficult is the fact that we are in the midst of a pandemic now and so many of our interactions are virtual, like the conversation that we're having right now. We can't see you face to face and we can't read your body language in person, but we have to kind of interpret how you're responding to us from the, from the body language that you're showing to us on the screen. Coming to that topic on body language, without the benefit of this face-to-face interaction right now, what are some blind spots that people tend to overlook with regards to body language, especially during a virtual negotiation? And how do we overcome these blind spots? So in terms of some of those missed opportunities when it comes to uh, body language and virtual, There's actually, interestingly, when I wrote my book, I actually finished writing it end of February 2020. So right before the pandemic started in North America, I had just finished writing it. And so we had a, I had a phase during 2020 where the editors came back. They're like, do you want to make any adjustments for this pandemic now that we're doing everything virtually? And I looked at it, I think I maybe changed one sentence in the whole book because I've already started talking about this. The fact that we have... We have the temptation already for years has been to do everything over email and text. We are leaning more heavily on email and text because we assume it's quicker or it's too uncomfortable to pick up the phone. You have an entire generation who doesn't like the telephone. (laughs) And so that's not unusual for a lot of people in multiple generations now. The boomers are the ones who want to use the phone first. The Gen Xers are quite comfortable on the phone, but are also have also learned to do stuff over email. Millennials and younger are going, why, why do we even have telephones anymore except to check messages? Now, the differences in this virtual land that we're in, the Zoom instead of the face-to-face, in a face-to-face meeting, I could shake your hand. I could hug you. You would pick up a lot on a hug from me. You could tell, are they doing this like butterfly tap on my back or are they genuinely embracing me right now? There's a sincerity that comes with that kind of thing before we've even said a word. The way you shake my hand, is it firm or is it weak? I'm going to get a lot of impressions from that. Those are some of the things that we're missing. We're also missing this really important element of the water cooler talk or you know that reception area bit. So if I'm walking into an office and meeting you, you're going to greet me, we're going to have the handshake, and then we're going to have a walk together down the hallway and we'll be able to talk about the weather and all that kind of stuff. Our meetings are back to back. Everybody I know, the second they say they hang up one meeting, it's like, okay, I'm running into my next meeting now. I've got to run. And we have to start business right away. We're missing that time to build up some likability. We're missing that time to build up the warmth and the smiles and so on. And it is much more difficult to sense that over the screen. So you need to turn up the volume on your emotions a little bit when we are speaking virtually. If I'm trying to build a relationship with you and I'm trying to build some likability and some sincerity and some trust, I need to smile more. I need to look more enthusiastic. My resting face is going to dominate because they don't have any other clues to compensate for that. They don't have the warmth of my hand or my hug or the little chit chat we had earlier. So I need to compensate for that by perhaps smiling more when I see you or it sounding a little bit more enthusiastic at the very beginning of our meeting instead of going straight into business. So we do need to find ways to compensate in some ways for this virtual camera, but it's because we've cut out the other stuff. And so we need to just insert more of that energy into what we're bringing to the camera. And you know, sometimes too, one of the other things we now need to be mindful of that I don't think we would have been thinking about before is some people just have Zoom fatigue. Not everything needs to be a camera on meeting. 
And that's okay too. But if you're giving somebody the courtesy or the empathy to go, I get you must have kids at home or whatever. So you may not want to be on camera right now. If you want to do a voice call, that's totally cool. Still take the time at the beginning, even if it's 30 seconds to build up that water cooler talk that we didn't have a chance to have. We need those moments. We need to build those in now because they're not automatically built into our interactions. And and the same messaging from pre-pandemic applies today about avoid starting things over email. Email, when it comes to high stake stuff, when it comes to important stuff, should be a confirmation as opposed to a tool to move forward. Because you might send an email thinking this will be quick, but now you've got to send 20 emails back and forth because of something that was misinterpreted in that first email. And so do it so that it's not misinterpreted the first time. Tell somebody, hey, you know what? I have a really quick question. I think it would be better resolved uh, or much more efficiently on in a five-minute call than a, f- a bunch of back and forths over email. When's a good time for us to connect. You know, those are the types of things that I would I would encourage everybody to start thinking about a little bit differently. Fotini, we also wish that this conversation was obviously ha- happening not virtually in person, <laughs> but unfortunately, alas, we are where we are today. But you know, just coming towards the end of our conversation, we would like to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions before we wrap up. And this is in conjunction with International Women's Day in the month of March and with this theme of break the bias. So with that, the first question for you is, what does gender equality mean to you? Gender equality means to me that someday we will not have to have Women's Day. (laughs) That's what it means. (laughs) Eloquently put. Second question for you. Who is the woman that inspires you the most and why? I would say personally, it's my mother because she's just an incredible person, full of empathy, who everybody adores, and she's full of diplomacy and tact. I would say professionally, it's Christia Freeland. She's the deputy prime minister in Canada, and she has just in recent weeks really hit the world stage. I've been saying that to everybody that she's a negotiation rock star. I watched her handle Donald Trump in in the North America agreements with ease. I'm now watching her lead the pack in terms of Russians uh, um, sanctions in, in the Ukraine crisis. I just think it's fascinating how her brain works and how she is such a powerful person without having to be abrasive or rude or any of those things. So uh, two very important women. Awesome. And finally, what is one message that you'd like to share with all the women around the world on this occasion? Oh, gosh, there's so many. But I would say the one message is you deserve this. Whatever it is that you are so nervous about, whatever it is that is giving you so much anxiety, it's giving you anxiety because you deserve it and because somebody else needs to recognize it too. So once you recognize it, it's going to be much easier to convey that to other people. That's such an important reminder, even for ourselves, Janice and me. Well, I certainly hope it's something that you can burn into your memory whenever you need it. (laughs) So beautifully put, Fortini. And on that final note, where can our guests find you? So you can find me on Instagram. It's at Fotini Icon. On Twitter, the handle is the same. On LinkedIn, uh, my DMs are open there as well. And on my website, FotiniIcon.com, there's some information coming very soon about online courses and even a membership community because I want people to keep practicing and practicing. On uh, Instagram, you'll find a lot of stories I have saved in my profile and reels and things like that with lots of these tips. So I hope everybody follows and keeps practicing. Love it. You guys know where to look for Fotini now. And as we officially wrap up now, Fotini, any final parting words to our listeners out there? 
my final words are just keep going. I mean, say less, get more works for me. Practice that mental pause button. Keep advocating for yourselves and send me your success stories because I love to hear them. That's how this conversation happened. Uh, And I'm so glad, Sarah Ann, that you did reach out. And I can't wait to hear so many more stories to come. And we can't wait to share our success stories with you from this negotiation conversation. So Fotini, thank you so much for sharing with us all the subtle and not so subtle ways that we can negotiate effectively by saying less and getting more. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been my absolute pleasure. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle explorethispodcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E, this podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then.